Welcome once again to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning and I'm a dolly, as any self-respecting person... Dimmers for life! How dare you! (laughs) (laughs) Our book this month is Unseen Academicals, the story that really demonstrates how sports just rams itself into every aspect of life, whether you care about it or not. Yeah. It's probably safe to assume that you guessed before starting this one that it was about the wizards. Uh, yeah, uh, the name is a little bit of a giveaway on that one. Yeah, there's some subtle hints. (laughs) I'm generally not into, like, sports movies or anything. Like, I'm not super into sports in general, but especially that is just not interesting to me. And so I was a little worried going into this that I was going to hate it, but I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, fantastic. Let's pull over the back of the bubblegum card to read the trivia. (laughs) Originally published October 8th, 2009, and coming in at 132,000 words, Unseen Academicals is the 37th Discworld novel, and generally accepted as the 7th individual novel. Although one can make the argument for being the 8th Rincewind novel and or Wizards book. The story centers around a game based on medieval football, uh, also known as mob football or shrub-tied football which is the precursor to the modern game that we Americans insist on calling soccer. The chasing of the Megapode as a university tradition is based on the Mallard Song, a tradition of the All Souls College at Oxford. Trevor Likely is a likely lad, a term used for both gifted athletes and delinquents. The character Juliet is only partially named for the Shakespeare play. Her name is also a play on the Jules Remet Trophy, which was the original award for the FIFA World Cup. The line about the three-eyed Mr. Wobble being more enlightened than the average bear is a reference to the Hanna-Barbera character Yogi Bear. And, as stated in the author's note, the Emerson poem Brahma has been adapted in the story into the chant of the goddess Pedestriana. Unseen Academicals was nominated for the 2010 Locus Award, ultimately coming in second. During the first print run, the bookstore chain Borders included parody trading cards of the featured characters. The audiobook version of the story, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts 12 and a half hours, with the Tony Robinson abridged version coming in at 4 hours and 45 minutes. The production company The Mob had planned to produce a TV movie version of the story for Sky One, but as of 2012, the rights were not renewed. In 2018, Audible produced an audio drama adaptation of the story, narrated by David Jason. Yeah, according to the reviews on the website, people don't really like that one. Yeah? Apparently, it's really difficult to get a Discord adaptation that people enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said that, like, uh, the medium is part of the art, and not all things translate super well. Our story begins in Unseen University, the premier magical institution of the city of Ankh-Morpork. The most recent of many responsibilities given to Ponder Stibbins, the youngest faculty member, is that of managing university traditions. In fulfilling this role, he discovers that the university food budget is largely supported by one particular grant, which includes the stipulation that the university participate in at least one football game every 20 years, and the deadline is almost upon them. There's so many parts of setting up for the plot of this book. It's kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah. (laughs) 
And, like, very few of them are actually relevant. Yeah, a lot of things kind of disappear once things actually start happening in this book. The wizards don't want to participate in football, partially because they're old and fat, but mainly because the game is extremely violent with frequent injury and death. But they don't want to lose the food, so they reluctantly agree. Meanwhile, in the lower regions of the castle, we meet the candle driveler, Nut, who introduces himself as a goblin. It quickly becomes apparent that Nut is exceptionally intelligent, physically capable, and unfailingly polite, but also has very little self-esteem and is driven by the concept of accumulating personal worth. Nut's a very, very sweet character. But considering that they're called candle dribblers, I thought basketball was somehow going to be more involved with the, like, sport of this book. Yeah, that, that would make sense. <laughs> it totally makes sense why it's not. I was just like, especially because the version of the book I have, the mass market paperback version, the ball is like a basketball. Yeah, it definitely is. Like, it's described in the book as a soccer ball. Yeah, some liberties were taken with it on the art. <laughs> Yeah. Also, just Terry Pratchett, like, probably got, like, people saying, really, about a character named Moist and decides to just double down. <laughs> yeah, that's a totally normal name. <laughs> Nut. The senior candle dribbler, Trevor Likely, who's known for kicking a can around, takes Nut up to the university kitchens, where they meet two of the girls who work there. Glenda Sugarbean is the stocky, bossy one whose skill with pies has led her to become head of the night kitchen despite her youth, while Juliet Stollop is an airheaded beauty who immediately butts heads with Trevor over their support of different football teams. Football apparently is just a thing that has always been going on in the background of Discord books and just hasn't been mentioned. Yeah. It's like, it hasn't been relevant. We're just, like, quietly never going to speak about it. Later on, after Nut has embarrassed himself by misunderstanding what is and isn't polite to compliment about Glenda, and spent hours dribbling candles as self-punishment, Trevor takes him to a football game. There, Nut meets some of Trev's friends, for lack of a better term, including the vicious Andy Shank. I think I said before that Terry Pratchett kind of only has, like, a dozen character personalities. Yeah, and then, like, to some extent it makes sense. Like, it's easier to work with writing-wise if you just understand, like, the shape of a character without getting into specifics. Yeah, it's just, like, all of the ostensibly new characters we've seen, I think, like, feel very familiar. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, like, if you had a big old board of all the characters of Discworld, you'd definitely be able to, like... Connect some dots and it's like, okay, yeah, here's this, like, archetype of character. Trevor, Nut, Juliet, and Glenda all make their way to the game, as do the wizards as part of researching how it's played. A stray throw means that the ball nearly hits Juliet, and Trevor saves her. Nut picks up the ball and throws it at the goal with superhuman strength and accuracy, which Trevor realizes the various teams will want to exploit by making him a player. So he takes Nut and runs away from the game before anyone else comprehends what has happened. Yeah, I mean, these early descriptions of uh, the game and the shove, like, feel so confusing. Like, I can imagine just how uncertain you are in there and, like, not even knowing what's going on and just the chaos of it all. And Trevor is able to very cleanly exploit that to their benefit. I definitely think that Trevor was, like, introduced as a lot more, like, 
pig-headed and... Not, like, the brightest, yeah. But, like, he quickly uh, undergoes some character development. Yeah, like, Trevor, by the end of the book, is a very, like, emotionally intelligent character. He's very, like, street smart, like, despite him seeming very obnoxious and brash and, you know, at the start of the book, he definitely like makes some very hard turns on that i think a large part of that is driven by him wanting to be better for juliet yeah he's like the in-universe explanation Mm -hmm. the out-of-universe one would probably be just that like terry pratchett realized that this was going to be like a focal character and quickly gave him some better personality traits yeah and i mean trev's introduction versus nut like very much sets up how intelligent but unsure nut is as a character around here like you mentioned is where we learn about the shove which is basically the type of mob mentality you get with sports fans most of the ogmaporkians seem to enjoy it or at least try not to resist it and nut is quickly captivated by the ambiance although trevor and glenda are both significantly less enthusiastic In one of the back streets of the city, Trevor and Nut run afoul of some rival team fans who are eager for a fight, a situation only made worse by Andy Shank arriving to help Trevor escalate the situation. In the resulting altercation, one of the rival fans stabs Nut, apparently killing him, but astonishingly, Nut is back in fine form just a few hours later. Yeah, this is where the book takes like a very weird turn for me, because it's like, Okay, it's like a fun sports movie jaunt or whatever. And then we hear that a character dies and we're like a quarter of, not even a quarter of the way into the book. Although like a quarter of the way into this book is pretty long. Like, Mm -hmm. It is one of the longest, if not the longest Discworld book. Yeah, I normally like give myself a couple days to skip reading while I'm reading in case I'm just like not feeling it or I get really busy or something. And I just was hard not able to do that with this one because I needed to like read every day in order to get it done in time. Not long after his recovery, Trevor enlists Nut's aid in Cyrano-ing a love poem for Juliet, while Glenda drops in on the university faculty discussing their plans to join in on the football. Despite her goal to be an unnoticed observer, she can't stop herself from correcting a few of the wizards' misplaced assumptions, including pointing out to them that jerseys with two large U's on the front would be the subject of endless mockery. (laughs) Yeah, Glenda's really great in the scene because it highlights a lot of her personality, how, you know, she wants one thing, but she is very much who she is, and that's confident and very honest and is ultimately like a bit of a like a mom friend absolutely yeah but like also she kind of ends up defending football even though she's not terribly into it like she's defending the energy and why a lot of people do end up getting really into sports where it's like there's this energy and camaraderie that comes along with being a sports fan that you don't find in a lot of other things yeah very true like i have a note about it later that i think what she's largely against is like the gentrification of it yeah which also fair if discworld has taught us anything it is to be wary of the gentry yeah (laughs) yeah that is something and maybe this is better talked about later but there is something in this book that feels a little maybe misplaced about um things trying to be made 
in big air quotes around this better than they were. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we'll get to it with Nut's character towards the end of the book, but, and I don't, it's definitely a thing where I get some questions and I'm like, I'm not sure about this. While the wizards get on with learning about football, Glenda and Juliet attend a fashion show downtown. There, they meet Madame Charn and Pepe, who see Juliet and instantly want her to fill in for an injured model. Glenda struggles with her instinctive reaction to stop Juliet from rising above her station, but some sherry-fueled introspection gives her pause, as does the obvious love between Pepe and Madame Charn, whose name, because of the kerning on my notes, is just like, I keep wanting to read as Madame Sham. Yeah, yeah, that R and N are really tight in there. As are Pepe and Madame Charn. <laughs> yeah. I can appreciate that that she essentially just ends up being called Madam for the rest of the book because it definitely, Sharn is definitely a little bit of a tricky one for me. What did you think of the whole fashion subplot? Because that's another thing that I never really spent a whole lot of time involved in, largely due to internalized misogyny. I understand kind of what it's doing in this book. You know, like Trevor has football. And Glenda and Juliet are both also, like, main characters in this book. Juliet definitely a little less so. But, like, I feel like the fashion stuff is in there to be like, whoa, okay, we have something for the girl characters to do since they're obviously not super into football the same way that Trevor is. And it feels like it kind of comes up fairly naturally. Like, Juliet makes sense as a character who'd be interested in that, and she talks about it before they end up going to the fashion show. But it feels a little weird for the rest of the book. I definitely see where you're coming from on that, although I think it is intended to be in service of the larger theme of, like, class disparity. Yeah, and I think, like, reading through the book, I was missing that a little bit because I was just so deep into sports stuff. But I I think that makes a lot of sense, and that gets especially more apparent the later we get on in the book. And, of course, the whole bit about micromail is pretty interesting. It's largely a parody of, like, Mithril from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's like a fun little detail that's added in early in the book that ends up coming up multiple times, both for joke reasons and then also like an actual plot reason at the end of the book. Back at the university, Arch-Chancellor Rid Cully and Ponder Stibbins investigate that magical relic known as the Cabinet of Curiosity and get it to create for them a new type of football, one much lighter and bouncier than the typical brick of leather. Since anything created by the cabinet has to be returned after a certain amount of time, the Arch-Chancellor gets Trevor and Nut to have a copy made. While on their way, the two get accosted by Andy Shank, but Nut knocks him down a peg without apparent effort. It's at this point where Trev starts talking about kind of not knowing what Nut is and in some way being afraid of that. And I like get what it's doing in the plot, But it feels like it's kind of introduced and then Trev never really has to confront those feelings. And maybe I'm just forgetting where that might have happened if that was the case, but... Yeah, I think that happens for a lot of, like, Discworld racism allegories. Mm -hmm. Is that, like, people don't really work through stuff as much as you would like. Yeah, it's like I I was kind of expecting a moment where he's like, no, Nut is my friend and maybe I don't understand, but that's okay. But man, just never happens. 
I mean, it's not said, but like, I think it's it's pretty heavily implied within Trevor's actions and everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. I definitely see where you're coming from, though. The next night, the university hosts a banquet with the captains of the city's various football teams present. Glenda and Juliet also attend because Glenda is starting to realize the extent to which she's been letting custom and etiquette rule her life, and she wants to break out of the crab bucket. I think, like, I really like Glenda's story in this book of just learning to identify the boxes we put ourselves in and the fact that they don't have to be there. And it feels really empowering to see her recognize that, recognize her own faults in, like, continuing to do that both to herself and others and choosing to grow past it. I think a lot of us as kids don't necessarily see the world as, like, those boxes we're just like why is it like this we don't like this and we're not going to do that um but i think as we get older we don't realize when we start putting ourselves into those boxes for one reason or another until suddenly like we're kind of surrounded by them mm-hmm. and so it's nice to kind of see the flip side of that where you know glenda's not a young child glenda's a young adult woman presumably and is grappling with understanding that she doesn't need to have a place in the world the way that she thinks she does it doesn't have to be the place that she was born into either yeah Mm -hmm. yeah she and everybody else is capable of change regardless of what society at large may say about that at the banquet lord veterinary informs the team captains that he is authorizing the formation of a new football league with new rules and other restrictions. Glenda is deeply suspicious, so the next morning, emboldened by her new existentialist attitude, she makes her way to the palace and confronts Vetinari, who has no small nostalgia for her grandmother's cooking. He assures Glenda that he's simply trying to reformat the game so that fewer people die. (laughs) Thus mollified, she's escorted out of his office. I enjoy this bit how Vetinari mentions that he is drunk, like, despite not appearing to be so. Yeah, and multiple times he's just reiterating, I am very drunk, correct? <laughs> and everybody else is like, no? Except Drumnot, who really knows his boss. <laughs> yeah, but as far as we know, Vetinari is Vetinari. Literally no change. On her way back to work, Glenda is met by Pepe, who is eager to find Juliet again. Her magnetic beauty, coupled with her mysterious disappearance, has made her a celebrity, and now Madame Charn wants her to model all her clothes, a career which will include a luxurious life traveling all over the world. The two of them find Juliet in the night kitchen and explain the proposal to her. Despite some concerns over not getting the opportunity to spend more time with Trevor, Juliet ultimately decides to go with Pepe, leaving Glenda behind. Yeah, this moment's really sweet because Glenda's really confronting her own understanding about the world and understanding that, you know, it doesn't need to be the crab bucket. It clearly, like, kind of pains her that Juliet will leave, but she's still like, you want this and you'll be great at it and, like, go for it if you want it. Not long after Juliet's departure, one of the other candle dribblers finds Glenda and tells her that Nut is sick. She immediately goes to help him, with Trevor joining her shortly. Nut reveals that the problem is not physical, but psychological. Lacking access to a proper therapist, Trevor and Glenda hypnotize Nut 
into psychoanalyzing himself and discovering a repressed memory of his time living with Lady Margolata, the ruler of Überwald. In her library, Nut had discovered a book on his own true species, Orc. Did you see this coming? I mean, Trev at one point in the book starts talking about, like, okay, so goblins are supposedly this way, but, you know, Nut's not like that. And so I had an inkling that, like, something was going on, but I definitely did not think it was going to be like, oh, he's not a goblin at all. He's an orc. So as plot twists go, like, some of the best ones tend to be, like, like making the whole stuff leading up to it make more sense. Do you think that that happens here? I think if we knew a little bit more about, like, goblins coming into this or talked a little bit more about what they were at the start of the book... That might have hit a little more. I still think it works, but we don't have any experience with goblins to compare against. So, like, for all we know, that could just be how goblins are and or how people think that they are is actually just a bunch of rumors and not true at all. So I think it works. I don't think it's, like, top ten plot twists of all time, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Although, like, knowing more about goblins would probably make it even more obvious that Nut isn't one. And so that might have reduced the impact. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things, like, it's easy to say, like, oh, I wish it was this way with, like, not actually being the person to write the book. But it's one of those things, as soon as you change one thing, a dozen other things need to be changed in order to make it work. And at some point it's like, ah, I don't know, maybe that's the best way to do it. Nut's secret gets out almost immediately, which panics most of the university staff, and so he hides away. Glenda eventually finds him and tries to talk him around, but gets nowhere. So she goes to the wizards to do some research on orcs, and she learns that they were a race used by a former evil empire as living weapons, forced to fight, and therefore not deserving of their reputation as monsters. Yeah, I mean, like... We understand that the Discworld is a rough place with some very rough edges. But to hear about this, you know, the fact that orcs were used like this is like kind of heartbreaking to know that people were hurt so explicitly and callously. You know how I like to play armchair editor from time to time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As in from one minute to the next. <laughs> but... Here's my pitch on something that I think could make this have a little bit more impact. What if the evil empire listed here was the Ankh-Morporkian empire that's been mentioned in a couple previous books? Yeah, that makes a lot of like sense. And I think it adds a lot of weight to that realization. And I think it also makes the ending of the book work a little bit better for me. And you know what? It might be. We don't really get a clear confirmation on whose side was whose. Yeah, and like, obviously, nobody's going to call themselves the evil empire, so it could literally be anyone. In which case, the orcs didn't, like, retreat into Überfald. They fled. Yeah, yeah, like, I think that, I think that's a very interesting change. I think a lot of cool things come out of just making that hard call. Glenda finds Juliet, who has returned for an extended goodbye session with Trevor, and the three of them head out in search of Nut, who has fled the city. Taking the late coach after him, 
they catch up with the orc on the road and bring him to a nearby town. This is where a lot of, like, Nut's obsession with being worth something really is, like, rendered in explicit heartbreaking detail. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, like, read through the section of the book and not, like, feel for him and not recognize points in, like, my own life where I've been unbelievably hard on myself for very ultimately kind of abstract and external reasons and like that's not fair for anybody to do that to themselves i'm the same way i we're all works in progress we're all just doing the best we can every day and that's all we can do when they arrive at the inn who should be there but lady margolata whom glenda wastes no time in telling off about the way she made nut obsessed with acquiring worth during their conversation glenda becomes aware of how much she cares about nut and after her ladyship leaves, she pledges to help him bear the weight of a society that thinks orcs are mindless killing machines. Yeah, like, this is a very soft, tender moment. And I think this book actually does romance pretty well for there having been basically no romance in any of the other Discworld books. You say that, I think there's been a lot of romance that's largely been put to the background or just, like, hasn't been done well yeah and it's i, I think it's because so much of that just happens just out of our view or characters are into each other but we don't actually see them like navigating having a relationship with each other and glenda and nut are definitely like doing that in this book maybe that's something we'll do as like a bonus episode someday down the line it's just like deciding which of the powered couples that we like best <laughs> yeah I also really like the clear shift that Nut has in understanding himself because before he has his realization that he is an orc and not a goblin, he's very like filled with doubt and he stutters a lot and he apologizes all the time. Like it's very clear that he feels bad about himself. He feels unsure. He feels scared. And then after he realizes it, even though like that uncertainty doesn't necessarily go away, it's shifted into an understanding at least and he feels more ready to face it and he speaks a lot clearer he doesn't apologize like even though this is all just text once we hit this point in the book I definitely was starting to imagine him standing up taller I imagine him looking very different than I did in the first half of the book because his character has gone such a tremendous shift so quickly it's not just figuring out what he is that causes that change it is understanding what he is and communicating that to those around him who still choose to support him because they care about him as their friend yeah mm-hmm that's powerful yeah how much of life is just being like i am away and waiting for the people around you to still welcome you even though it's scary the four of them return to ankh morpork where trevor finds out from one of his friends that a sizable number of football players and fans aren't happy about the new safer game and have decided to assemble a new team to demolish the unseen academicals at the inaugural match one of the players is Andy, so Trevor is worried, although Nut seems unconcerned. The night before the game, they go to visit Pepe, who provides Trevor with a micro-male vest and shorts. This scene, apparently, micro-whale, micro-whale, micro-male is like vibranium from the Marvel Universe. It literally does uh, the Black Panther suit thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
we've been hearing about micromail this entire time and it's like oh like it's magical because it doesn't chafe and it's like okay that's a funny little bit but then actually it's like no it is still like armor it you know will protect you if you get hit the unseen academicals face off against unk Morpork united and the game begins between the underhanded tactics of the other team and their own incompetence the wizards quickly lose several players forcing Nut and Trevor to step in as substitutes. Nut is a, is a capable goalie, but Trevor can't quite get the hang of the new ball until Glenda replaces it with a tin can. With Trevor back in his comfort zone, the university team quickly ends up winning the game. This entire scene is just very fun because, you know, stuff's just happening so quickly and... Glenda replaces the ball by hiding the other ball in Mrs. Whitlow's skirt since she's acting like a cheerleader. And like another part that I really like is that Trevor this entire time has been insisting that he does not play football because he promised his mom he would not since his dad uh, was a famous football player and died during a game. And he like really fights against playing football. He like really wants to keep this promise to his mom until he at the like very final moment can't and decides that you know his friends are more important than the ghosts of his mom and this promise following him around and it's like i think in a lot of these kinds of things the character who's like i don't do that thing or i can't do that thing ends up just doing the thing you know at the most opportune moment and i think trevor kind of fights back against that a little bit it's far more interesting i think with their victory, Juliet is temporarily imbued with the divine spirit of sport, and she and Trevor kiss. Andy tries to attack Trevor and is rebuffed by the micromail to later be dealt with by Pepe, and Nut openly challenges the city that if they have a problem with him being an orc, they can do something about it themselves, which earns the crowd's respect. Yeah, like, what a smart move on Nut's part. Like, that's a very risky decision to do, but obviously, like, nobody's going to do anything in the moment because it's either you don't think he's a threat and so what's the point or you do think he is and you realize you wouldn't i'm trying to think you of a way handle to handle him yeah i was like i'm trying to think of a way to say this without swearing so i'm struggling a little bit <laughs> you would get shrekt <laughs> yeah you'd get shrekt obviously like it comes to work out where it's like okay if everybody in a crowd can reach the decision that nut is a threat who needs to be taken care of like it kind of shows everybody all at once that like the majority of people don't think so at least not in a capacity to do anything about it afterwards nut and glenda pay a visit to lord veterinary and lady margolotta the latter of whom asks him to go find the other remaining orcs and help them prepare to re-enter society he agrees but offers Glenda the chance to come along for a while on a romantic getaway, which she accepts. Also, this book has like four epilogues. <laughs> the you think it's over like pages that are mm -hmm. like spaced through are apparently a thing in football commentary. Huh, okay. Yeah, so that helps it make sense, but like I also see what you mean. Yeah, there's definitely context that I, like, just don't have, so it's yeah. good to know that that was actually important and not just, like, a very strange creative decision. Yeah. So that was Unseen Academicals. What'd you think? Uh, like I said at the start, I actually think this book is far better than I was expecting it to be going into it. Like, I don't think it's a perfect book by any means, but I do think it's very fun and entertaining throughout for the most part. And I think it has the benefit of just not, like, getting 
too bogged down in like Discworld stuff. Like at the end of the day, it's still just like a fun sports like movie thing and a satire on it to some extent. I think there are places where it gets bogged down a little bit. Mm -hmm. The wizard stuff is definitely the weakest part of the story, although it's kind of hard to imagine a version of the book without them. Yeah, it's just there was is set up in order to get things moving along. You know, they're the oh, they're like a MacGuffin. There's two stories happening here. One being a lot more interesting than the other, yeah. and <laughs> the less interesting one is the one that focuses on a bunch of characters who have been th- recurring throughout the series. Yeah, and it's just kind of like I don't know. They're here doing wacky stuff. That's fun, isn't it? Hmm. I didn't even mention the whole subplot about the former dean having left the faculty to become archchancellor of a rival college, or how he comes back to to issue a, a challenge to Ridcully for the official archchancellor hat, because it barely even matters to the plot. Yeah, like in an adaptation of this, that's like the first thing getting cut. <laughs> As has been the case for several of the more recent books, I loved Vetinari's bits, Especially that whole monologue he has about the nature of evil. Yeah, like, Vetinari's been very good in the recent books. Like, he's very funny and snappy, and it's great. He is definitely, I think, one of Terry Pratchett's favorite self-inserts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the thing a lot of people fail to see about writing is that parts of you as the writer end up everywhere in your book because you're the one writing it, and it's completely unavoidable. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, Vetinari is the one who says most eloquently the things that Terry Pratchett has thought about. Yeah, he's good for, like, meditations on the world. Also, not to repeat myself, but my read on Glenda and Juliet's friendship is that there's a non-zero amount of unconscious romantic interest in there. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely was picking up on that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A large part of that is how when Juliet tells Glenda that she loves Trevor... Glenda's instinctive reply is, you can't, which, assuming I'm not just projecting, really evokes that particular blend of cowardice and jealousy found in unresolved sapphic crushes. Mm-hmm. Like, I could just hear the faint echoes of Grace Petrie's The Last Man on Earth whenever I think about it. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, especially that scene where Glenda is saying, like, no, you should go do this thing. You should go model if that's what you want. It definitely feels like a moment where Glenda's realizing that, you know, she can let Juliet go and that her wanting Juliet close may not necessarily be what makes Juliet the happiest. And, you know, just being like, no, I care more about your happiness than having you close to me. Yeah. It's like, if you love something, set it free. Yeah. All I'm saying is that it is a known bisexual stereotype to be attracted to only the very best men and basically every woman. Am I wrong? (laughs) Yeah, no, like, totally. And especially with, Nut is a very specific kind of man, like a person in general. And so it makes sense that, you know, Glenn is going to pick a dude, like, Nut makes sense. This book is definitely one for the monster lovers. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least half of it is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's really interesting that happens in this book. I don't know if there's been any other books that talk about is cross-species romance the right thing? Because Pepe and Madame Sharn are human and a dwarf, and I don't know if we've ever, like, seen that anywhere else either. Uh, well, I mean, in the last book, Making Money, there was the whole subplot I think we didn't really talk about 
of mm-hmm. Gladys the Golem having some sort of crush on Moist. Yeah, yeah, there was that. And I guess it's like, this is like a full relationship. And now there's two of them? Interesting choice. I'm supportive of it. Yeah. And I mean, like, technically, if you want to get, like, splitting hairs about it, way back in Guards Guards, the big dragon and the swamp dragon Errol, like, having a romance. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, like, they're technically two different species. <laughs> yeah, like... I had completely forgotten about that. That feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it really does. There's like this thing that this book does about acknowledging that you may have like done wrong in the past. You may have been not good and choosing to face it and get better. And it kind of feels like that extends to the whole orc thing where Venonari and Lady Margalata like talk about how basically the orcs have been wronged and they deserve the chance to, you know, be part of society. They deserve the chance to get education and, you know, live not on terrible conditions, presumably, like constantly worried for their safety and especially not to be treated as threats by the entire world. And I definitely see where that's coming from, kind of like owning up to the fact that, you know, Veterinari and Lady Margalata are not at fault for what happened to the Arcs, but accepting responsibility for that and trying to do better anyways. But on the other hand, it kind of just feels, that part specifically kind of feels like trying to label something as savage and then like civilize it in a way that a lot of you know, white European Western stuff has tried to do. Yeah, it's very colonialist. Yeah, and there's something about it that just, like, doesn't, like, super work in my brain. And I've just been having, like, a hard time since I finished the book kind of reconciling those ideas together. If I may, I think a large part of it is the way that they put the onus of civilizing the orcs on nut. Yeah. Like, it doesn't seem virtuous the way that the narrative kind of frames it as being. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is more just, like, having a bit of a blind spot and not, like, obviously, like, an intention to do harm. But it definitely feels a little uh, misshapen and tone deaf to me. Yeah, I can agree with that. So, for each book, I like to come out with a thesis statement. And here, I'd like to say that... Every living thing has inherent value, irrespective of their direct contributions to any social system. And everyone benefits from those people who diligently and compassionately seek to assist those around them, which is not required of anyone, but should be appreciated when it happens. Yeah, I think that's really hitting it on the head. Which is definitely, I think, a step up from last time, where just like a large part of the the thesis was how can people make money off of you <laughs> yeah and that book was literally about making money so you know yeah so, so i think it makes sense that that was maybe a little shallower on that but yeah i think this book is very concerned with how our relationships and our own intentions help us to be better people but we don't necessarily like need to be better people in order for us to matter yeah all right so want to say thank you liz for joining me as always yeah thanks for having me yeah thank you to willow carter for our theme music to everybody who's joined us and a special shout out to the randomly selected patron this month it is 
Ian. Yeah, thanks, Ian. If you enjoy the show, please consider following us on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. I post each episode to my YouTube channel, as well as sharing them on Reddit and stuff like that, so feel free to reblog or just share with any Discworld-loving friends you might have. And, of course, we like to close out each episode with a reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote. Technically, the city of Ankh-Morpork is a tyranny, which is not always the same thing as a monarchy. And in fact, even the even the post of tyrant has been somewhat redefined by the incumbent Lord Vetinari as the only form of democracy that works. Everyone is entitled to vote, unless disqualified by reason of age or not being Lord Vetinari, and yet it does work. This has annoyed a number of people who feel somehow that it should not, and who want a monarch instead, thus replacing a man who has achieved his position by cunning, a deep understanding of the realities of the human psyche, breathtaking diplomacy, a certain prowess with a stiletto dagger, and, I'll agree, a mind like a finely balanced circular saw, with a man who was got there by being born. A third proposition, that the city be governed by a choice of respectable members of the community who would promise not to give themselves airs or betray the public trust at every turn, was instantly the subject of music hall jokes all over the city. However, the crown has hung on anyways, as crowns do, on the post office and the royal bank and the mint, and, not least, in the sprawling, brawling, squalling consciousness of the city itself. Lots of things live in that darkness. There are all kinds of darkness, and all kinds of things can be found in them. Imprisoned, banished, lost, or hidden. Sometimes they escape. Sometimes they simply fall out. Sometimes they just can't take it anymore. So that's it for this month. Join us again next time for I Shall Wear a Midnight. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.